morning to share from God's Word. You know, there are things that we do and say because we've always done it or said it that way. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, we sprung forward this morning, and uh, I'm not exactly sure why we're still doing that. I'm sure there are reasons from long ago, but I, I really can't. This thing is wrapped around my neck, Clint. We got a we got a prankster for a uh, for a sound guy. Uh, we we sprang forward this morning, uh, and I I don't exactly know why. I nobody likes it. Nobody likes losing an hour of sleep. And you know I'm honestly I'm ready to stage a revolution. Who's with me? Let's uh let's just refuse to participate. That's what that's what I want to do. Um. But there are things that we do and say because we've always done it that way. We've always said it that way. There's a story of a little girl who uh, who who watched her mother make Christmas dinner. And before she put the ham in the oven, she cut off both ends and, and put it in the oven. And the little girl asked her mother, why did you cut off both ends? ends of the ham before you put it in the oven, and she said, well, I'm not exactly sure, but I think it soaks up the juices better, but I I learned that from your grandmother, so why don't you call her? So the little girl picks up the phone, and she calls her grandmother, and she says, grandmother, why do you cut the ends off the ham before you put it in the oven? Grandmother said, well, I think that it soaks the juice is up, but I don't really know. I learned that from your great-grandmother. You should call her. So the little girl picks up the phone, and she calls her great-grandmother. She says, great-grandmother, why do you cut the ends off the ham before you put it in the oven? I hear it's because it soaks up the juices better. And the great-grandmother laughs, and she said, well, when I was in charge of making Christmas dinner, I didn't have a pan big enough to put the ham in, so I had to cut the ends off. There are things that we do because we've always done it that way. There are things that we say because we've kind of always said it, but we don't really know what it means. And we've been looking at the Apostles' Creed together, and and it's been a great time of kind of diving into some theology of what we believe to be true as Christians. And this morning we're focusing on the line that says, We believe in Jesus Christ, that He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. But is that just something we say? I mean, what does that mean anyway? Why did Christ have to die for my sin? What, What does death have anything to do with it? Is that just something that we say? But the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, he says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. So he says, I received a message and I delivered it to you. That's of first importance. Number one in importance. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. What does that even mean? How is it 
in accordance with the Scripture. Well, this morning I, I want to show you that Jesus' death on the cross for our sins doesn't come out of nowhere. It is in accordance with the Scriptures. It is a focal part of the story that the authors of the Bible have been telling from the very beginning. I want to show you how Jesus fulfills the Day of Atonement and that Good Friday was the new Yom Kippur. So we're going to be in the book of Hebrews together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter chapter 9. The book of Hebrews was written to a, a group of Christians who were tempted to go back to Judaism. They wanted their maybe their their sacrificial system and their washings and their law-keeping. They wanted that to run parallel to their faith in Jesus. And the book of Hebrews is written to these kinds of people to show them that, no, Jesus is better. So we're going to look at Hebrews 9 together. Um, And at the beginning of Hebrews 9, he's going to describe the tabernacle, and then he's going to describe some sacrifices that were made. Why don't we Look at this together. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 5 describe the tabernacle. Let's read together. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot cannot now speak in detail okay now let me help you with this Um, we have a we have an image if you're a visual learner we can put that on the screen so you can see what's happening okay i know pastor mark a few weeks ago put one of these on the on the screen so you could see it but basically what's being described is the tabernacle uh the tabernacle uh the people of israel are are wandering in the wilderness they they show up to sinai god wants to dwell among his people but the situation is such that god is holy and his people are not so if god dwells among his people his very presence is going to kill them he doesn't want to kill them and so now there is a tabernacle where the lord is going to live among the people but he's going to live in that little section right there called the holy holy of holies that is where he's going to concentrate his presence so god said build a tent build a tabernacle it's a portable temple that they're going to carry with them through the wilderness. Now, the author of Hebrews, you may have noticed, described two sections, and really, uh, there are three. So the outer section there on the far right where you see the bronze altar and the bronze, uh, that's a wash basin right there, um, that it's labeled the courtyard, that outer section, any clean Jew could go there. Um, the author of Hebrews in chapter 9 is not referring to that section right now. All he's talking about are those two other sections where you have the holy place, and the holy of holies. Okay, that's what he's referring to. So in section 1, he's referring to the holy place. In the holy place, there are a few things located there. There's 
There's a lampstand. There's a, there's a table. And on that table is, is the bread of the presence. It's kind of labeled differently there, but, but the bread of the presence. Notice that it's all household furniture. As if someone lives there. The idea is, yes, someone does live there. God lives inside the temple. That is his house. So in section one, you have the holy place. And verse three starts to talk about what he calls section two, which on here is labeled holy of holies. The author of Hebrews calls it the most holy place. It's the same thing. Okay. So there's, there's a couple of things with that holy of holies. First of all, there is a veil. It's called the veil. It's a curtain more like a partition that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. In front of the, the veil is the altar of incense. Okay, that goes right in front of the veil. On the other side of the veil is the holy of holies. Inside the holy of holies is the ark of the covenant. You probably have, have heard about that. You know it well, but it's, it's a box. The word ark means box, and it's about this big. You know, it's about like that. It's covered in gold. Inside the ark are a few things. There's the, the Ten Commandments, the actual tablets that, that uh, Moses brought down from the mountain that God wrote on with his finger. Those are in, in that box. Also inside that box uh, is a jar of manna. You remember the story where the people of Israel wandered through the wilderness and they were hungry. So God sent bread from heaven. It just appeared on the ground and and the people called it manna, which translated from Hebrew means, what's this? <laughs> it's a great name for it. I don't know. What's this? Uh, they collected some of it. They put it in in a little uh, jar. They put that inside the ark. Also is Aaron's staff. If you remember the story, Aaron's staff budded. And God did that to show that Aaron is the true high priest. So all of those things are inside the ark, which is inside the Holy of Holies. On top of the ark, it's got a lid. And that lid is called the mercy seat. Now, when you hear the word mercy seat, you probably think about sitting. That's not what that means. Um, the mercy seat, what that is, is the location where mercy can be found. That's what that means. So the lid of the ark is called the mercy seat. On top of that lid, you have some cherubim, some angels that are constructed out of gold. And those two angels are facing one another. And their wings are outstretched. And their heads are bowed. They're looking down toward the mercy seat. And between and above those cherubim is empty space. And the idea is this. Inside the Holy of Holies is where God's presence dwells. And the way they talk about it is God would meet with the people. And, and the Ark of the Covenant was his footstool where he would rest his feet and he would sit on his invisible throne and he would meet with the people of Israel above the cherubim in that invisible space. There would be the presence of God among the people in the Holy of Holies. Nobody goes through that veil. Nobody. We're told expressly, if you go back there, you die. Except one time a year. Look with me at verses 6 through 10. In verse 6 it says, These preparations, talking about the tabernacle being set up properly, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing 
their ritual duties. Now, what he's talking about there is he said, he's talking about that first section that, that we were looking at, the, the holy place. They go in and they've got to, they've got certain things they've got to do. They've got to change out the bread. They've got, they've got to take care of the lampstand. They have these ritual things that they've got to do and they go in there regularly. What he doesn't really mention there is what's going on outside of the holy place in the, in that courtyard area. The front, towards the entrance of that courtyard, there is an altar. And every day, all day, animals are being slaughtered on that altar for the sins of the people. You see, if you're a Jewish person and you're wandering in the wilderness and you want, you want God's presence to stay among you, when you sin, you take an animal. To the priest, and it gets slaughtered on the altar to pay for your sin. If you become unclean, there are certain washings and sacrifices and a time of staying outside the camp that are necessary for you to become clean. And at that altar, that's where the sacrifices are being made. Here's the problem, though. As an individual, and you know this, as an individual, you can't really know every sin. You know, you can't really know all of it. You're going to miss some things. You're going to have some blind spots. You're going to sin against somebody. And instead of them confronting you, they're just going to leave and not talk to you about it. But you sinned against them. So what are you going to do now? You are you are a sinful person. What are you going to do? Well, the Lord knows this and he provides. Look in verse seven. But into the second section, the Holy of Holies, he's talking about. Only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So what's being described in verse 7 is the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. That, the directions for the Day of Atonement are in Leviticus chapter 16. You don't need to turn there, but I would encourage you later today, just sit down and read it. It's one chapter. Sit down and read it. All the details that you could want about the Day of Atonement are right there. Leviticus 16 is so important in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. They were written by Moses, also known as the Pentateuch. First five books of the Bible. The very center of those first five books is Leviticus 16, the very middle. That shows us that it is a very important part, maybe the most important part of the first five books of the Bible, the Day of Atonement. For that reason, the Day of Atonement is the most important day of the year for the people of Israel because sin has been building up. It's not being atoned for by these sacrifices that are brought every day because they don't know about it. So sin has been building up. They need something to take care of the buildup. You understand this because although you may brush your teeth twice a day and remember to floss, you still got to go to the dentist. I, uh, there was a seven-year period in my life where I did not go to the dentist. And then when I decided to go again, it was a rough experience. I recommend keeping up with your appointments. But when you brush your teeth twice a day and you 
floss as you should. You do these things. You still don't get it all. You still don't get it all, so you've got to go to the dentist, a professional, who can get rid of the buildup. Well, that's what's happening with the Day of Atonement. This is Yom Kippur. You've heard that before. That's a Jewish holy day. It means Day of Atonement. That's what this is set up for. Leviticus 16 sets up this day where the high priest atones for the sins of the people, and the way he does it is he goes behind the veil where nobody can go. One day a year, he gets to go behind the veil. Leviticus 16 gives us all the details, but as the author of Hebrews says of these things, we cannot now speak in detail, but I'll give you a summary. Here's how the Day of Atonement works. The high priest is usually the best dressed guy in town. But on the Day of Atonement, he's not. He dresses down in humility. He looks just like everybody else. Usually when priests entered the temple for uh, temple work, what they would do is they would, they would wash their hands in the wash basin that you saw on that thing. But on the, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest washes his whole body. It's a special day. And the first thing he's got to do is before he goes behind the veil, he has to take care of his own sin. So what he does is he starts on the outermost part of the tabernacle where that altar is, and he takes a bull, an expensive animal, and he kills it on the altar. And he collects some of that blood, and he takes some coals from the altar, the fire at the altar, he takes some of those, and then he enters into the holy place. That's section number one. He walks over to the altar of incense that was right in front of the veil, and he takes some of those coals and he puts it on that altar. And what happens is there's this smoke. This smoke fills the room, and the smoke goes behind the veil and fills that room too. He creates this smoke. And then what the high priest does is he goes behind the veil. And he takes this blood from the bull that he's collected, And he doesn't smear it on the mercy seat. Because if he touches the ark, he dies. So he sprinkles it. He flicks it. Seven times he, he flicks this blood of the bull on the mercy seat. And then if it were me, I would get out of there as fast as I possibly could. So he leaves the Holy of Holies. He exits. Through the holy place, he goes back out to the altar where the people of Israel have brought a goat. He's atoned for his own sin. Now it's time to atone for the sin of the people. So he takes this goat and he kills it on the altar. He collects some of its blood and he repeats the process. In through the holy place, in through the veil, seven times he flicks this blood on the mercy seat. And then he gets out of there. He's atoned for the sins of the people. I want you to imagine the scene that that daily, throughout the entire year, sacrifices are being made on this altar every single day. These animals are being slaughtered. And and even though these sacrifices are made daily, and even though the, the sacrifice of sacrifices was made annually, the veil still 
there's still a separation between God and the people he loved. Why? Look in verse 8 of chapter 9 with me. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. God's presence was hidden behind the veil because sacrifices and offerings cannot perfect the conscience of the people. The sacrificial system is temporary. It is a shadow of what's to come. And it's futile. You see, the sacrifices never stop. You may have heard the uh, the uh, the Greek mythology uh, Sisyphus. You probably don't know the name. I had to look it up. But he's the guy who has to push the boulder up the mountain as his punishment. And when it gets to the top, what happens? It falls right back down. And in his pride, he continues to try to push that boulder up the mountain. And he never can get it out and up and over. It always falls back down. That is an exercise in futility. That's the same with the sacrificial system. You can make all of these sacrifices, but you're going to have to just keep making all of these sacrifices. You're never going to get over the top where you don't need sacrifices anymore. The sacrifices don't stop. The sacrifices don't clean your conscience. They don't fix your soul. They cut the weed off at the top, but the roots are still there. You know it's getting warmer, and our grass is about to start growing, and we're going to have to cut the grass. Some of you, me, didn't put down pre-emergent. You're going to get some weeds. So how are you going to get those weeds out? You're just going to mow over the top. The weeds didn't go anywhere. You just hid them. The roots are still there. That's what the sacrifices do. It just hides it. It it just lops it off at the top. But the root problem, the reason why you need the sacrifices in the first place, it's still there. The sacrifices don't clean your conscience. And the sacrifices don't allow you to draw near to God. There's still a veil. One guy, one time a year, can go behind it, and if he does something wrong, he dies. There's still a veil. They don't, the sacrifices don't allow you to draw near to God, and yet, when Jesus shows up on the scene, everything changes. Jesus fulfills the Day of Atonement. Look with me in verse 11 of chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What these verses explain to us is that Jesus' sacrifice is better. No one, no one enters into the presence of God on their own. The high priest had to sacrifice a bull to get in there. But Jesus, he entered into God's presence. It makes it clear he didn't enter into the actual Holy of Holies. It tells us. There in verse 11, not the not the temple made with hands, not of this creation. In other words, he entered literally into God's presence. And he entered in, he didn't have to sacrifice a bull first. He just waltzed in. And when he waltzed in, he didn't offer the sacrifice of a bull or a goat. He offered his own blood for the sacrifice of the people. And his sacrifice is better because his sacrifice has the power to do what the other sacrifices could not. Because Jesus' sacrifice not only cleanses our sin, but it also cleans our conscience. It cleans our soul. It takes away the stain of guilt and shame. Something the blood of a goat thrown on top of a golden box could never do. Jesus' sacrifice is better, and also Jesus' sacrifice is ultimate. Flip over to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. It says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The futility of the sacrificial system could not be any clearer. Look what it says. He stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over and over again, pushing the rock to the top of the hill only for it to come all the way back down. But, verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. When Christ offered His sacrifice, it was different. It was a single sacrifice for all time. And when He offered this single sacrifice for all time, what does it say in verse 12 that He did? He sat down in the presence of God. He sat down in the presence of God. In the tabernacle, there was some furniture. Household furniture. Table, lampstand, a wash basin, things you might find in your house. Do you know what's missing from the tabernacle? What furniture might be missing? A chair. There's not a chair in the tabernacle. Do you know why? Because the work never finished. The work was never done. The sins of the people just kept coming and coming and coming. And so the work was never done. When Aaron walked, walked in, when the high priest walked in behind the veil, there's no chair in there for him to sit down. He gets out of there as fast as he possibly 
could. But when Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice, he waltzes in behind the veil. He throws his blood upon the mercy seat and he pulls up a chair and he sits down in the presence of God because his work is finished. He tells us in in John's gospel, when Jesus dies on the cross, what's the last thing that he yells out in a victory shout? It is finished. Somebody get me a chair. Yeah? Yeah? And because of this, the author of Hebrews kind of pulls in some Old Testament scripture from Jeremiah. He says, I will put my law on their hearts. I will write it on their minds and clean their conscience. And then he says, I will remember their sin no more. Anybody live with regret? The memory of what you've done in the past. Wishing you had made different choices so that maybe today would be different. You and I might be forgetful in a lot of ways, but we remember our own sins very well. But we're told here that the blood of Jesus makes it possible for God to remember our sins no more. When we place our faith in Jesus, the text tells us our sins are forgiven. Not because God sweeps them under the rug and pretends like they don't exist anymore. And not because He's like a God's like an old grandpa who just kind of winks at, at your wrongdoing and then offers you a stick of gum. Your sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus. He died in your place. He suffered the consequences for the deeds you have done. It should be your death. But we place our faith in Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and our sins are truly forgiven. Everything changed. When Jesus showed up on the scene, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and was buried. And Yom Kippur is no longer the day of atonement. Good Friday was. So, if you take hold of the sacrifice of Jesus and count his death for yours, that has a ton of implications for you. Let me, let me give you two. We can rest. We can rest. We can stop trying to atone for our own sins. To beat ourselves up when we have sinned. We can stop trying to live up to other people's standards and other people's expectations of us. We can stop trying to prove ourselves worthy. We can simply rest in the work of Jesus. Jesus wants you to rest. You don't have to keep pushing that boulder up the hill. Just stop. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
He entered into the presence of God. He sprinkled his own blood on the mercy seat. He has accomplished it. You don't have to. So when you walk in guilt and shame, you've trusted Jesus, you've received his forgiveness, and then you walk in guilt and shame. When you, when you beat yourself up for your sins, when you, when you try to live in such a way that you make up for the mistakes you've made and I'm just going to do better so that, so that then God will forgive me. When you do that, what you're saying is Jesus' sacrifice was not enough. You're living as if he didn't accomplish it. So we can rest. The second thing is we can draw near to God. Christ entered the Holy of Holies. He didn't need to bring a sacrifice for his own sin because he has none. He takes his own blood and he throws it on the mercy seat. And the Bible tells us in the Gospels that when when Jesus died on the cross, that veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And one of the things that this means is that the dividing wall between God and man is now destroyed. The high priest used to pull that thing back and enter with fear and trembling. He would get out of there as fast as he could. Jesus came in and he just yanked the whole thing down. He, he's done with it. So now you and I, we can enter into the Holy of Holies. We can enter into the presence of God with confidence and boldness. Look, look at what uh, Hebrews ten nineteen says. Look at this. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We can draw near to God in confidence. We can draw near to God with joy and not fear, because perfect love drives out fear. We can approach the throne with peace and not fear because the one who is seated there on the throne is no longer just the judge. He's also our father. And that's why Charles Spurgeon once said and reminded us, my brother, no veil remains. What need do you have? What anxiety do you have? What keeps you up at night? What from your past continues to haunt you? What relationship needs restoring? What wounds need healing? What, what sins need forgiveness? Why do you not approach the throne? No veil remains. Tim Keller once pointed out that the only one who dares to wake the king at 3 a.m. for a cup of water is his child. That's the kind of access that's been given to us by the blood of Jesus. 
but I'm afraid of a couple of things this morning. One of the things that I'm afraid of is that some of us in the room, we are running from God. And we're like Adam and Eve after they sinned in the garden. They, they went and hid among the trees. And the Lord God is calling out to them, trying to restore the relationship, but they're hiding from Him. Why are you running? Why are you hiding? Why don't you come home? Because here's the deal. You can't hide your sin from God. And your sin, my sin, our sin, is an offense to Him. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. And we bear the responsibility for our sin, for our behavior, for our words, for our attitudes. We bear the responsibility alone. Someone may have hurt you and may have caused the situation. Someone may have made you mad and caused the situation. But you are still responsible for your own behavior. And the consequence for sin has always been death. But Jesus has offered a way to forgiveness by His death on the cross according to the Scriptures. So why are you hiding? Stop running away. Run to Him. The death of Jesus doesn't come out of nowhere. It's the, it's the focal point of the story that the biblical authors have been telling from the very beginning. I showed you that this morning, but my question for you now is, is Jesus' death on the cross the focal point for the story of your life? Have you received the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death of Jesus? I, I, I think I've put some of you in a really bad spot this morning. I'm not sorry for it, but I, I put you in a bad spot. The bad spot that I put some of you in is that no one in this room can plead ignorance on the day of judgment. Because I've told you that we are all guilty. And I've told you that, that we bear the responsibility of our own sins. We alone bear that responsibility. And we will stand before the judge. And we've been given a way out. Faith in Jesus is a way out. And what you do with that information has eternal ramifications. So I'm afraid some of you are running and it's not necessary. I'm also afraid that some of us are asleep. Not necessarily physically. When I was in college when the Passion of the Christ movie came out. You remember this? Uh, and it was it was super weird. Not the movie itself. The movie was fine. Uh, I guess it was it was well done. Not not the movie. Here's what was weird about it. I I went to the theater in College Station, and and the movie's called The Passion of the Christ. The word passion means suffering, suffering of Christ. You, you show up and you buy a ticket. And then you go inside, and I, I go inside and I, I stand in line at the concession stand. 
and I buy some popcorn, and I buy some candy, I buy a soda. Spent like $75, (laughs) right? And then you go, and you hand this person your ticket, and they tear it. And they tell you, you know, Theater 7. You walk over to Theater 7, and Theater 6 is some raunchy movie that other people are going to see. And I go into Theater 7, and I sit down in a chair. And I've got my popcorn, I've got my candy, I've got my drink, I'm munching on popcorn, I'm crinkling the wrapper of my candy, I'm doing that really annoying thing with your straw, you know, it makes that noise. And meanwhile, on screen, there's a portrayal of Jesus Christ suffering. His blood is poured out. His back is ripped open with a whip. They they press a crown of thorns on his head. They laugh. Bit. They mock. They punch and they kick. They take nails. They they put them through his wrists and through his feet. And I'm I'm munching on popcorn. can't help but wonder how many of us in the room right now are just munching on popcorn. That the death of Christ is just something I'm observing from a distance. It has no real effect on me. I'm just watching. It doesn't change anything about me. I'm just observing. Does Does the death of Jesus change this church at all? Are we, are we, is that the focal point of what we're doing here? Or is it kind of kept at arm's length? I'm afraid that some of us are asleep. And we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see because here's what I know and what the Bible teaches us is that when the Lord Jesus returns for a second time, He's not going to come back uh, as, as a lamb offering Himself to be sacrificed again. We, we can open Revelation and we can look at the way it describes that when Jesus comes back the next time, He comes back as a conquering king riding a horse ready to do battle, he is going to crush all those who oppose him. That is true reality. We won't be allowed to just munch on popcorn. Anymore. 